have your Bibles, why don't we grab them and go to the book of 1 Peter together. Last Sunday morning, we finished up 1 Peter chapter 1 and sort of looked at the, the topic of the importance and the life-giving power of God's Word. So if you weren't with us, that study is available to listen to, and I certainly think the understanding the value of God's Word, and particularly the verses last week in connection to the things that we're looking at together this week, um, just so pertinent for us uh, as believers to understand the incredible importance of the Word of God in our lives. So last week we finished up the first chapter. This morning that would have us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 as we talk about spiritual growth this morning, which certainly is apropos as we begin a new year, a great uh, sort of thing to focus on, maybe as a personal resolution to grow in the Lord in this next year ahead. And then next week, as we pick back up in verses 4 through 10, we'll see how the Lord's building work is accomplished and how he builds our lives both individually and corporately as the body of Christ. So if you're turned to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, would you stand together with me as I read God's word this morning? 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 1. Peter says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And Father, we thank you for a chance to sing to you and to express our praise to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, and to let your spirit move among us that we might have fellowship and intimacy with you. And Lord, we ask now for the help and the aid and the assistance of your Holy Spirit to prepare us to be receptive and attentive to what the voice of God would say to us through the word of God this morning. So we ask for your spirit's anointing upon the word as it goes forth, that you would prepare us and that you'd speak powerfully and personally to each one of us. Lord, you know what we're asking and what we need. We pray you'd do such now by faith in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, whenever a child is born, it is sort of the natural and expected thing that that child would then begin to grow and develop continually. It is the norm, always the norm, something abnormal is taking place when a child that is born does unfortunately maybe not grow or not mature. That's a sad and a tragic thing. It's the norm when there is birth and a child is born for it to continuously make advancements into further maturity. And the same exact thing is true spiritually. That once we have been, as Peter's talked about twice in chapter 1, born again, once we've experienced our spiritual birth personally and our spiritual life has then begun, it is God's design, it is God's intention that growth and maturity would then follow. That we would continue to make advancements, that we would continue to progress in our development in our spiritual life. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 Paul alludes to this same thing where there Paul says that we should not remain like immature children or infants, but Paul actually says, but that we would grow up into maturity. So that's God's design, just like it is God's design naturally for a newborn child to grow up, to mature and make advancements. God's intention is the exact same spiritually. It is the normal, healthy progression that a Christian should experience that once they're born again, that they would then make progress spiritually. They would grow, they would develop, and come to greater states of maturity. And it seems the focus of chapter 1 was kind of on spiritual birth. That is how our spiritual life begins. And it seems now the focus of chapter 2 is on spiritual growth. That is how we mature and how we develop As a Christian, and obviously our first few verses clearly seem to indicate that. Now remember, the background coming off the end of chapter 1 was Peter once again focused on this topic using that term of being born again, about how our spiritual life began. We were born again. We had a spiritual birth. And particularly in that section, the last few verses, he talked about how the Word of God played a very important part in that process. 
that God's word is like spiritual seed with spiritual DNA, the ability, everything encoded within it to impart life, to cause life to happen and then to develop, that God's word, like spiritual seed, is planted into a human heart when they hear the gospel, they hear the word of the Lord, and then it is watered by God's spirit, which in then turns causes conception spiritually and birth or brings about spiritual birth and spiritual life. And now with this understanding still in Peter's mind of sort of the life-giving power of the word of God, Peter just continues sort of with this same train of thought, and now he begins to discuss in chapter 2 how the word is also essential for spiritual growth. In the same way it's essential to bring about spiritual life and cause spiritual birth, the word of God is also critical for spiritual growth after our spiritual life has begun. And there's a definite connection that we should notice, therefore, between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning and start of chapter 2. That's why the first word out of Peter's lips in chapter 2, verse 1, is therefore. That's always a connecting term. It's a term that means in light of what I just said, or because such things I've just stated are true. So Peter is saying, therefore, because you have been born again of the word of God and a new spiritual life has begun, or in light of the fact that you know God's word has such an important part in your spiritual life, now, therefore, respond in light of that as you continue to grow. So he's going to instruct believers, we'll see here, to exchange what is unhealthy and might stunt or hinder their spiritual growth and instead to focus on and to pursue what is healthy that will enhance and facilitate their spiritual growth instead. Look with me again in the first verse. Peter starts out by saying, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. So the first thing Peter does is he instructs us to separate ourselves, you notice, from certain sinful conditions and ungodly behaviors through what we would call repentance. And repentance is a word that really is very clear from God's perspective, but it has radically been distorted and confused, it seems today, especially in the modern church. Repentance, biblical repentance, is a change of mind that always leads to a change of attitude and behavior. It is when you change your mind about something that you believed was okay, acceptable, uh, appropriate before, and you have a change of mind, you say, no, that is wrong, and you have a repentant mindset that then leads to, because it is wrong, therefore, I will now change my response and behavior in light of that. And the reason for this need of separation from this list of things Peter says in verse 1 is because such things clearly, as we look at them together, are representative of our old life without God. They are things that stem from our sinful nature, those things that are displeasing to our Father as a child of God. These things he mentions in verse 1, malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking, we know that they are not consistent with God's will. And we know they're not consistent with God's word. Therefore, such things present in my life, such things if they exist in your life, are always going to quench God's spirit and thereby also hinder or stunt our spiritual growth. So Peter says to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these things must be done away with. If they are present in our lives, if we find them within ourselves or a part of us, if and when they are there, he says in verse 1, we must lay these things aside. Your translation may render that rid yourself of such things, or your translation may say put aside such things. It all carries the same idea. The word lay aside, literally the term that's used there means to cast off once for all by making a deliberate decision to put away such things from yourself. Peter's saying this is what we need to do as Christians, consciously. We must deliberately make a decision to lay aside these things and rid ourselves of that which is inconsistent with God's word and God's spirit. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul kind of says it this way. Ephesians 4, verse 22 to 24, he says, We must put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And the Bible teaches this concept throughout the New Testament, that there is this understanding spiritually that when we're born again and we start a new life with God, the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things pass away, all things become new. And experientially and practically then, as I live out my Christian life, as you walk with the Lord, there is this understanding that I must consistently and repeatedly, daily, put off the old life and, and remember, look, that's the old life. Now, that old sin nature is still there. And now I find internally in my heart, there's a constant wrestling for who and what is going to reign on the throne of my heart, the old man or the new man that's in Christ and that has Christ's spirit dwelling within. So there's that constant struggle and challenge there, that tension that exists of am I going to succumb back to the old life and, and indulge my flesh and my sinful nature, or am I going to, by the resurrection power of the Spirit, yield to the Spirit of God, yield to Jesus' life within me, and let him rule over the throne of my heart and live the new life like the new man was created to live in Christ Jesus. And there's that constant thing where in the same way you get up every morning and typically we, you know, you take off yesterday's garments, you take off the old dirty clothes, you put on new clothes, a fresh set of clothes. It's almost as if every day that we have to do that, we got to consciously choose, like, I'm going to put off the old life and I'm going to put on the new life. I'm going to live the way God's intended me to live in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And that means sometimes a repentance, a laying aside, a putting away certain things of the old life if they try and creep back in as they do on occasion. So Peter says, with this brand new life, he sets a list before us here, not exhaustive, but certainly enough to convict me and capture probably the attention of every one of us in the room this morning. And he says, these things are some of the things that we have to lay aside. We have to rid ourselves of. The first thing he mentions is we need to lay aside malice. Malice And malice is basically harboring ill thoughts toward another person. Uh, it's what we might call holding a grudge in anger or in bitterness, whereby uh, we sort of secretly wish, and a lot of times we wouldn't say it out loud, but because we're harboring ill thoughts from an offense or a hurt or something that's angered us, we almost secretly wish for some harm or revenge in our heart towards another person. In fact, when you look how that word is defined, it's defined in this way from the English dictionary. It's a deep-seated desire to cause pain, injury, or distress to another, or just to see them suffer. That's what malice is. And this is where we find what gives birth to what we often call malicious behavior. We say, man, that was really malicious what he did. Or, man, the way that she acted, that was really malicious. I mean, what does that mean, malicious behavior? Well, malicious behavior is basically what we're talking about when we say that is that mean or hurtful treatment that we give to another person due to a feeling of resentment. And let's just be very honest in this room this morning. We are all susceptible to this condition, and we can all be guilty of this at times to small degrees, to very large degrees. And I'll tell you the reason why. Because every single one of us in this room this morning takes our fair share of turns of getting hurt by another person or getting offended by someone else or something happening to us that angers us or wounds us. And whether it's something that happened 27 years ago, whether it's something that happened uh, two and a half days ago or 27 minutes ago, we get offended, we get hurt, we get wounded. Sometimes it's a small offense, sometimes it's something grievous, and as a result, then this temptation towards malice comes. This temptation of sort of harboring and holding on to that hurt or anger in our heart, and then sort of, again, sort of with a, a spiteful feeling within, whether we render the mean treatment or whether we just enjoy it when we see someone else render the mean treatment, that's malice. 
where there's this hurtful, mean-spirited attitude, very can be very subtle in our heart, where we actually want to see a person suffer because of something maybe they've done to us or that's taken place. And listen, today, can I ask you, evaluate your heart. Is there truly in your heart or in your mind malice towards some individual because of something that's happened? Is there malice in your heart towards them? And if there is, God desires that you repent of that, that you consciously recognize that, that you confess it, that you admit it to God, and then you simply lay it aside. And let me offer a suggestion in relation to malice. It's not always the case, but sometimes maybe what needs to happen is maybe it involves you actually talking to that person to convey your struggle verbally to them to help you release the animosity and to be set free from that in your life. Sometimes that's a part of this. Sometimes a part of the repentance and a part of the releasing of malice in our heart is the need, difficult as it may be, hard as it may be, humbling as it may be, to actually talk to that person, write them a letter, speak to them face to face, and and convey honestly what you've been struggling with to help you release your animosity, to let it out of your system, to let it go, and to experience the repentance process and the healing process that maybe needs to happen. Peter also says not only malice, but we also need to, he says, lay aside or rid ourselves of all deceit. And that word deceit there in the Greek refers to catching something by use of bait or craftiness. The word deceit there speaks of really any form of dishonesty. It speaks of any type of deception or being deceptive, whether it's falsifying information, whether it's telling lies, whether it's cheating, whether it's doing things in shady ways. It's misguiding someone for the purpose of accomplishing maybe your own agenda or fulfilling your own intentions so you misguide somewhat to accomplish what you want. And because human beings are innately selfish, because we are innately selfish, it is shocking, truly, I find, what we will do to ultimately get what we want. Because we are so selfish and so driven at times to get what we want in a situation, it is really astounding how deceitful we can become to manipulate or to do things to just get what we want at the end of the day. And as well, because none of us really like facing consequences, that also makes us very prone to deceit. Because sometimes because we don't want to face consequences for what the truth is or what's going on or what we've done, sometimes we become deceitful, deceptive, dishonest in certain ways because we're trying to just avoid the consequences that we rightly should experience to help us, but to avert consequences, we become deceitful sometimes. And again, this morning, can I ask you, is there anything you have been saying recently that really is dishonest? Is there any way that you have been doing things recently which really are actually kind of deceitful? Have you been guilty of being deceptive in your interactions with other people, in relationships? And if so, God simply wants us to rid ourselves of such things and to set things right, to come forth with the truth and bring things into the light. He also mentions, thirdly, that we have to rid ourselves or repent of hypocrisy. And that's our word there, the hypocrites in the Greek, which was a term they used in the ancient culture to refer to the wearing of a mask when you were acting in a play or as a stage actor. And that's exactly where that term came from. It's a very fitting illustration. It was pretending to be someone that you are not. When you're a play actor on the stage, they had the masks in that day that were on a pole. So uh, you would hold the mask up in front of your face to then play the part to pretend to be someone that you truly weren't behind the mask. You hid your true identity to pretend and act as if you were someone else. And this is a very fitting word for what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy in our lives is... You know, it's covering up the truth. It's living a double life. We're acting like something else than what we really are. It's playing a part 
in front of others to try and hide who we really are or what's really the truth about us. And again, hypocrisy, being a hypocrite, this can happen in large and extensive ways that are very severe in their outcome, like Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, when they played the hypocrite in the early church and they were severely disciplined and judged by God because of their incredible hypocrisy before God's people. Or whether it's in just sometimes small and subtle ways, hypocrisy can be a part of our lives. As Peter himself, who's writing these things, was aware that he was once guilty of, and I'm sure it wasn't the only time. But Galatians chapter 2 records for us a time when Peter himself was rebuked by Paul the Apostle for his hypocrisy. Galatians 2 verse 11 to 13, Paul writes this. Listen to what Paul says. He says, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he then withdrew himself and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews played the hypocrite together with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. In summarization, what Paul's describing is a time where Peter, under social pressure, trying to impress those who came from Jerusalem to give a different image and to impress others, basically became guilty of hypocrisy. And so much so that Paul says, I withstood him to his face. I rebuked him right in the presence of everybody and said, Peter, you're acting like a hypocrite. What are you doing? That's hypocrisy. And, and Paul literally was bold enough to rebuke him right to his face for his hypocrisy. And, and it was just the simple struggle, and do we not all struggle with, where Peter, at one time he was interacting with certain individuals, but then when a different group came, he retreated and pulled back because he didn't want to look like he was then having fellowship with these people. So to try and impress others or keep a certain image socially, he played the hypocrite and he backed away. Human beings do this all the time. We can be guilty of hypocrisy in just the smallest and subtle ways. Interesting, remember, hypocrisy is something that can manifest itself in many different ways, and we all at times share in guilt over. And if we remember, from what I read in the New Testament, it seems that Jesus appeared didn't need to be most severe, particularly in the area of hypocrisy. Let me cite a few reminders regarding that. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus revealed that we can be guilty of hypocrisy in our prayer lives. And he talked about how even in prayer and in public prayer that we can play the hypocrite in our prayers. Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 6 of how we can be hypocrites in our acts of service and even in our ministry and helping others and doing charitable things that we can be hypocritical. He spoke of how we can be guilty of hypocrisy in our spiritual disciplines or even in the things that we refrain from as Christians that we can do it in a hypocritical way. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus revealed there how we can be guilty of hypocrisy by the critical spirit that we can have at times in our hearts towards other people. Remember in that section, Jesus was talking about how we can see the speck in someone else's eye but we can't even see the the beam, the large two-by-four or four-by-four that's sticking out of our own eye. And, And Jesus alluded to that and pointed out that that is a form of hypocrisy, he said. How is it that, he says, you hypocrite, how is it that you can see and identify the smallest flaw in everyone else, but you fail to identify or ever address the major issues that are going on in your life? And see, for this reason, this is one of my grave concerns at times when someone will have maybe a major issue in their life. Let me just say this in attachment to that. A major issue in their life which they are not dealing with rightly before God, but yet they feel they have the right to minister and help other people. And to me, I see a grave inconsistency in that. Listen, by no means am I a perfect individual or do any person who ministers ever arrive to a level of perfection. But if there is something grievously out of tune in my personal life, That's a time for me to step back and say, you know what, I need to address the huge two-by-four that's affecting my life before I think that it's a moment or a time for me to be able to help someone else 
with the small specks and struggles that are going on in their life. And Jesus said, we have to be careful. These can all be areas of hypocrisy before the Lord in our lives. And remember, to, to put the, the closure on this big topic of hypocrisy, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus spends a whole chapter greatly interrogating, listen to his words, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders for having a form of hypocrisy where they kept a religious spiritual image in all their spiritual activities. But Jesus says, but in your private and personal life, it's all a sham. Matthew chapter 23, verse 28, Jesus said, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And Jesus repeatedly discussed hypocrisy there in relation to keeping a spiritual image in the activities of a religious life, but lacking that reality in the personal and the private life of their genuine relationship with God. Very dangerous. And the Holy Spirit is addressing here and commanding here, listen, when there is hypocrisy in our lives, we have to be willing to repent of it. We have to be serious about being willing to lay that aside and ask for God's grace and help to repent of it and rid it from our lives to the best of our ability with God's help. He also mentions next envy. And envy there in verse 1 is just a term that refers to a heightened, intensified form of jealousy. Envy is that anger or displeasure we feel when we see someone else possessing or experiencing something that we don't have or aren't experiencing, but truly we actually want the same thing for ourselves. So since we can't have it, we don't want them to have it either. And since we can't have it or we're not experiencing it, when we observe them experiencing it and we observe them having it, it actually angers us. It takes us beyond jealousy to actual envy in our hearts towards them. And envy, again, can be over many different things. It can be over material possessions, we can have envy in our heart over some position that another person holds. We can have envy in our heart because of maybe the attention that another person gets that we wish we were getting that attention. We can have envy in our hearts over someone else's status or lifestyle or maybe some opportunity that they enjoy or some experience that they're having that, that they've been blessed with and we're not experiencing that. Uh, or, or, again, maybe some freedom another person has. And because we don't have the same freedom, we get angry because they're enjoying that freedom and we don't get to have that freedom in our lives. And again, this, this can manifest itself in so many different ways. And whatever the source is that contributes to my envy, the fruit of envy is always still unhealthy and sinful. And the Bible says it must be repented of. It's something that's not healthy. It will stunt and hinder our spiritual growth. Well, the last thing he mentions, verse 1, in that list of things to rid ourselves of is finally then evil speaking. And the Greek term used there refers to speaking down or talking against. So he's not necessarily, I don't think, here referring to things like uh, you know, just using profanity or making filthy jokes or talking in evil ways. I mean, certainly the Bible would teach us that that is wrong as well. But particularly here, the term used seems to speak of evil speaking towards another person, speaking down or talking against. So defaming somebody verbally, backbiting, gossip. Your translation may say slander. It refers to cruel speech. The picture there in your mind if I can illustrate, is like chewing another person up verbally. Using your words to verbally chew up another person. Now, whether that is in cruelty of speech directly towards that person in conversation, or whether is that in cruel cutting speech, tearing them down before others, whether it's behind their back in gossip and backbiting, or whether, listen, or whether it is cutting them down in front of other people, which at times tragically, and I say this because maybe it's an encouragement this morning, I see husbands and wives do this to each other publicly. And it is something that we have got to repent of. It starts out as funny jesting, but I tell you, it is utter disrespect. As a husband, I should not be criticizing my wife 
in public before other people. As a wife, listen, ladies, you should not be castrating your husband with your mouth in front of other women. It is wrong. It is hurtful. It is destructive. We shouldn't be doing it towards our friends, towards our families, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when such things are present, again, oh, why would we even talk about this? We're Christians. Well, listen, Peter's writing to Christians. And the Bible is just very honest. And truth be told, I can read that list, and probably in the last week or month or year of my life, I've been guilty of every single one of those things. I find those things present in my life. And I have to realize, look, these things, they're unhealthy, they're dangerous, they're destructive. James chapter 3, read it. James spends a whole chapter, in essence, talking all about the tongue. He says the tongue, it's like a little spark, and it can start a whole forest fire. James chapter 3, he says there that our tongue is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. An unruly evil full of deadly poison. That's how he describes what our tongues can be like. They can be very deadly in the things that we do. We can speak a word and we can just poison and intoxicate a situation. We can with lethal poison inject someone with the most hurtful words that can have a long-term damaging effect in their lives. And we have to be very careful. James says it's strange. With our tongues, we bless our God and Father, and at the same time, we curse people who've been made in the image of God. And Peter says we have to be careful of that. And Peter knew the error at times of using his words the wrong way. When you read the Gospels, you see that was a struggle for Peter. He understood the propensity to do this. So the language here is imperative. These are commands. As a child of God, he's saying we must rid ourselves of such things because such sins are not consistent with the nature of a child of God. They're not consistent with the Christ-like spirit. And as a result, they will hinder and stunt our spiritual growth. And let me say one other thing before I move on to the second verse, and that is this. When you look at verse 1 in the list that's, that's set there before us, Ponder this with me. Is it not true that those tend to be things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking, those tend to be things that as human beings we kind of feed on. And they're very self-serving. We feed on our envy. We feed on malice as we nurse it in our hearts. And, and those are things that we kind of feed on. And, and we, we just let you know, resonate in our lives and we feed on them, but they're very self-serving and tragically they're spiritually paralyzing. And they always stunt and hinder us from growing and maturing spiritually. So verse 2, Peter says, as newborn babes, rid yourself of that, but as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may, what, grow thereby. So Peter says, instead of feeding off corrupt and destructive things, we should seek to proactively instead feed and nourish ourselves on God's word instead. Now, in the prior verses, the end of chapter 1, Peter likened God's word to seed sown into our hearts. Here now, in chapter 2, verse 2, Peter likens the word of God to a mother's milk that is to be desired and fed upon by a nursing child in order to receive nourishment. Again, if we think from a natural perspective, as he gives this analogy of the word of God like a mother's milk, a mother's milk provides the absolute best source of nourishment for the child that she herself gave birth to. It gives the antibodies and the healthy agents for a growing and developing child that she gave birth to. And in the same way, follow this, God gave birth to us spiritually. And therefore, it is God's word, which he also created, which he also is the origin of, it is God's word that gives us spiritual nourishment like the milk of a mother for the child that she gave birth to. God's word possesses what is needed to nourish the spiritual man, to enhance spiritual growth, to help us to develop into proper maturity. The word of God possesses, just like a mother's milk, the properties in it to promote spiritual health, to fight off spiritual infection and things that would hinder us from being healthy and growing spiritually. So Peter is emphasizing we must be partaking of the word of God. In fact, he says it so clearly in verse 2. He says that you may grow 
thereby. I have that underlined, that you may grow thereby, that you may grow by it, that you may grow through it. The Holy Spirit's teaching us here that the word of God is essential, essential for spiritual growth. Listen, spiritual experiences are wonderful. I personally value spiritual experiences. I personally, my conviction, believe all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are present, available, and in operation today. And spiritual experiences are valuable. They're wonderful to have experiences with God. But spiritual experiences are not something we can grow by. We grow through the nourishment of the Word of God that feeds our soul and our inner man spiritually. I cannot properly grow by spiritual experiences alone. And I cannot primarily grow by spiritual experiences. The primary way whereby we grow and mature spiritually is the Bible at work in our lives, nourishing our spiritual man, giving life, giving understanding, feeding the inner man, the spiritual man, to enable us to be healthy and to grow and mature spiritually. In fact, hear me, we cannot grow apart from feeding upon and nourishing ourselves with the word of God regularly. Just like, follow the train of thought, just like if you starve an infant. If you starve an infant, it will not grow, it will become ill, and it will behave irritably. No amens if you have a newborn. If you starve an infant, all those things happen. In the same way, if we fail to feed off God's word and we starve ourselves from partaking regularly of the word of God in our spiritual diet, we will not grow spiritually. We will become ill spiritually. We will begin to behave carnally and we will be unhealthy in our spiritual lives. Just like a dependent newborn, the Bible says we need the pure milk of the word. Just like that newborn needs the pure milk of its mother to be you know, experiencing the greatest benefit of health, we need the pure milk of the word of God to nourish us spiritually. And that word pure there indicates to be undiluted or unadulterated. It's an indication of not mixed or watered down because sometimes in that culture, in the ancient culture, they would add water to their wine. They would add water to their milk and certain substances for different purposes. And the idea here is God's word alone. God's word alone is that pure spiritual milk whereby we are nourished and it is the absolute best thing for our spiritual diet. Listen, are there supplements to God's word, devotional books, books that are Christian books about theology and doctrine? Yes, absolutely. Wonderful. But they must be supplements. They're additions. They're they're helpful tools, but they never should replace the purpose of the pure word of God in our lives. I, you know, do I read Christian books? Yes, but not as much maybe as I would prefer to even or or maybe some others do because part of the reason is I know who I am and I live with the Judas inside of myself just like you do. And I know that I can read a Christian book, but that Christian book never has the same impact, effect, and help in my life as the book for Christians, which is the pure word of God. I need the pure word of God. Listen, other things, you know, just like maybe if there's a challenge or an issue and a mother's not able to nurse and so therefore the use of formula. But again, we know scientifically, biologically, that's still not as helpful as if it's possible for that baby to nurse from the pure milk that the mother herself can generate the way God's intended in the natural design. We know it is not as effective as the pure milk of the mother in the same way. Christian supplements are great, gang. Listen, they have their place, but nothing can replace, nothing can accomplish what the pure milk of God's word can accomplish in our lives. And we know through studies and research and personal experience 
that a person's diet, that is what they eat and in what proportion, has a direct effect upon their health, has a direct effect upon their condition. In the exact same way, spiritually, the same is true. Some folks are genuinely saved. I don't doubt that they're saved. Some people are genuinely saved. They've experienced Jesus Christ. They're born again. But yet, is it not true, some people who are genuinely saved are still living unhealthy spiritually. They're still immature spiritually. They believe in Jesus, but yet they still actually live quite carnally. They actually are like infants spiritually. They're Christians, but they're still very selfish. They still have bad habits and ungodly behaviors and you know sinful habits that they let dominate their life. They're inconsiderate of others. They, just like a babe, they're self-absorbed, they're needy, they contribute very little, but they want to consume and be self-focused and self-absorbed, and they're genuinely born again, but yet they're very immature spiritually. They still behave carnally. I find that many a times the reason behind that is typically a just simple lack of God's word in their diet. Maybe perhaps it's that they don't routinely invest time in their Bible. They don't routinely take the time and make the time to invest in the Word of God in their life personally and privately. Or maybe that individual, though they're a believer, they isolate themselves from church. And because they isolate themselves from church, they don't get a regular, consistent input of the Word of God in their life through the teaching of the word, through the conveying of the word of God, shared through brothers and sisters talking to them, and that, again, contributes to the lack of the feeding and the nourishment of God's word in their life. Or maybe, unfortunately, they attend a church where basically the presentation of the word is nothing more from the pulpit of like whipped cream Sundays for sermons. And I've listened to sermons that are like that before. They may be very eloquent, very proficient speakers, but the bottom, and very, you know, interesting, cute, funny, you know, current, relevant, all these things, but the basis of what's coming through the teaching or the message is the consistency of, like, just a whipped cream sundae. It, it's sweet, and wow, and it's, oh, it's so wonderful, and tastes, and fantastic, and, and it's enjoyable, but there's no nourishment in it for the soul. And listen... I can eat a whipped cream sundae, and it may give me a quick sugar high, but it doesn't give me anything to last for energy throughout the rest of the day or the remainder of the week. Do you understand what I'm saying? I need to be, the world that we live in, I need to be nourished in the Word of God if I'm going to even make it through Monday in the world that we're now living in, let alone through Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. I need to be spiritually healthy and strong. I need the nourishment of the Word of God. Really, it is not complicated, God is saying, giving attention to our spiritual diet will enhance our spiritual health. Giving attention to your spiritual diet will enhance your spiritual growth. Jesus said it this way, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Hey, in this week ahead, in this year ahead, let us be challenged to abide and remain in the word, in our personal lives, privately, in our discipline of letting God's word be a part of our life regularly, in in making sure we're consistently being fed the word of God through a Bible study or a church service, that we might experience growth and health spiritually. And Peter's metaphor says that we need to do this as newborn babes desire pure milk of the word. Again, it's metaphorical, the idea. It's the picture of the hunger you see in a nursing child. If you've ever seen a child, a newborn, when they're nursing, again, that similar appetite is what we're to have for the Word of God. An infant's appetite, isn't it? It's voracious. It's regular. And no matter how much you feed them, it seems like it never goes away completely. That appetite always comes back again, and many times very quickly. There's this craving and intense need to be fed in a newborn. And Peter says, this is a picture he's putting in front of us. He says, that's a picture of the appetite that we should develop and retain for the Word of God, that we should seek after 
that same appetite. A Christian should have a desire for God's word. Can I encourage you in your devotional reading for this week? Read Psalm 119, very long chapter, all about the word of God. Read Psalm 119 and read it with a prayerful heart and say, Lord, give me that heart towards your word. Listen to what one statement from Psalm 119 says. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. That's appetite and desire for the word. And have you ever noticed, I can speak from personal experience and from what I observe in others, it seems like we begin our Christian life with a real strong appetite for the word. When we first get saved, you're real hungry for the word. You watch a newborn Christian, you know, they're real excited for the word. They're, you know, they're reading it all the time. They're talking about it all the time. They're showing up on Sundays. They're showing up on Wednesday. They just, they're hungry for the word, just like a newborn babe. But then a lot of times what happens is something, and it's different in all of us, something over time then causes that appetite to start to diminish in Christians, where sometimes then they, they don't have the same appetite for the word. And there's this subtle thought or feeling within kind of, well, I, I, you know, I mean, I've already read that. I, mean, I already know what the Bible says. I've read it. I've read the whole thing already. Or I've already read that book. Or, I mean, I, I don't need to go to church. I, I, I know what the Bible says. I've heard people literally say this. I already know what the Bible says. What do I got to read it for again? It's, that, that's a very dangerous, dangerous thing. The reason why is because it's nourishment. And we need it for retaining health, and we need it for continual growth and development. One man said, a hungry Christian will be a healthy Christian. Great truth to that. And again, sadly, many lose an appetite for the Word of God. They don't desire to read it privately. They make no effort to keep it incorporated in their day-to-day life, or they're disinterested in opportunities to hear the Word of God taught or expounded. And God's saying to us, if we don't hunger for His Word or we fail to feed upon His Word, we will stop growing and start decaying spiritually. Hey, think from a natural perspective. In the human body, one of the clear indicators something is wrong is a lot of times a lack of appetite. Many times when there's a lack of appetite, that is a symptom of a warning signal that's linked to a greater problem within. And the same is true spiritually. When there begins to be a diminishing of the appetite for God's word or a disappearance of the appetite for God's word, there's probably no clearer indication that something is not right spiritually. And we can't ignore that. If I find that in my life, I can't ignore it. I have to cry out to God and say, God, I don't know what's wrong with my heart, but give me a hunger for your word again. God, increase my appetite for your word because I know it is essential to my relationship with you. Job said in Job 23, I've not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. One man said, Christians must be addicted to their Bibles. I like that. Christians a lot of times can get addicted to all kinds of things, whether it's substance abuse or wrong relationships or social media today. We should be addicted to our Bibles, that we would not be anemic spiritually. Hey, today, as we begin a new year, can you ask yourself together with me, what is your appetite for the Word of God? Do you desire to grow spiritually this year? Do you want to develop into more Christ-likeness? in your Christian walk? Do you want to experience all that God has for you and walk in the Spirit? I think the answer is set before us right there in verses 1 and 2. The answer to those questions are very simple. We need to rid ourselves from feeding on what's unhealthy, and we need to return to a diet and dependency upon God's Word. Notice verse 3, Peter, then in connection to that instruction, says, if, or probably should better be translated, since you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, when we symbolically say tasted, Peter says we've tasted of the Lord. He's speaking symbolically. When you taste something, you're experiencing it firsthand for yourself. Somebody maybe has tried a particular food or something, and they say to you, hey, man, this is great you got to try this. Taste it. And when you taste it, once you taste it, you then experience that for yourself. You're not hearing about the experience. You've now experienced it for yourself once you taste it. That's one part of tasting. 
The other aspect of tasting is when you taste something, that means that you're just having a sample. But there is still plenty more available afterwards. There's more to partake of. You're just tasting it, and then you continue to partake of more available afterwards. This is the analogy Peter uses of tasting of the Lord, particularly the experience of tasting and experiencing that the Lord is gracious. And every Christian who's experienced the Lord knows that he is gracious. It speaks of being kind and merciful and patient and compassionate. Peter might here be thinking of Psalm 34, 8, where it says, taste and see that the Lord is good or gracious, same idea. And for all of us this morning, we first experience he's gracious at salvation when we come to him just as we are and we experience how gracious he is to receive us and forgive us. And then we repeatedly experience that the Lord is gracious as we come to him each time after every failure and we realize, man, he's so gracious with us though we blew it again, we can come back to him and he's so gracious to deal with us. And sometimes we experience that he's gracious when we have a special need in our life and he's so gracious in his assistance. He's so gracious in his help to give us aid and strength when we're struggling with something. So why does Peter bring up this idea here to remind us that we've tasted the Lord as gracious in light of what he's just said in verse 1 and 2? I think because maybe it's a reminder that there is good news if we feel we have failed and fallen short in what he's just talked about in verses 1 and 2. Peter says, look, the Lord's not going to condemn you. The Lord's gracious. You've tasted before that he's gracious. So Maybe you have struggled in those areas of verse 1 and 2. Maybe you are struggling with those areas. The Lord doesn't want to condemn you. He's gracious. He wants to forgive and help and heal you. Maybe you haven't been growing. Maybe you haven't been putting the proper emphasis on God's word in your life. The Lord doesn't want to condemn you. He's gracious. He wants to help you repent of that and, and experience all that he does intend for you. And I think Peter's just reminding us of this reality that the Lord is gracious because he's saying, look, and he knows that you can't do it on your own. But even as you've experienced before, he's so gracious and kind to help you, whatever your struggle is. He'll be gracious to you. He will be so gracious to help you in whatever way you have need. And he has multitudes of grace, treasures of grace. And the times that we've experienced his grace before should just whet our appetite to want to seek him to experience his graciousness again and again and again in our lives. And Peter says, remember that. It should stimulate our taste buds. Peter's going to say this in the end of his second letter. You, therefore, my beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, may we trust that in the same way he's been so gracious to us before, that he is more than ready to be gracious to us again, right where you're at this morning. You've tasted and experienced he's gracious before. This morning, whatever God has spoken to you, respond to him again and say, Lord, here I am. Be gracious to me. Help me, Lord. I want what you want. I want to experience all that you intend, and God will do.